You guys, when I uh, became a pastor, uh, one of the things I started doing was premarital counseling. Uh, I took a pre-marriage counseling course and to be able to help engaged couples navigate the beginnings, the, the, the initial needs from a new marriage. Now, I'm not so sure my wife thinks I'm competent enough to do that sort of counseling, uh, but I got a piece of paper that says I can do it, so I do it. And before I sit down with, I still got a, big, a bit of a ring here, Murray. Um, before I sit down with a couple, I have them fill out this questionnaire, and uh, it's quite a long questionnaire. It's like 500 questions, and uh, the, yeah, so, so you've got to really mean it when you want to get married at Fort City. And there's 500 questions, and then they take this test separately, and we feed the results into an algorithm, and then this algorithm spits out some things, uh, their, their strengths, uh, maybe things that they need to work on, uh, and it kind of gives us a ground to, to begin talking about marriage. Um, after I did this training and got the certificate, just for fun, I thought, hey, Adrian, why don't you and me do this test? And uh, we've been married 10 years at the time, so I thought we're going to pass with flying colors. <laughs> Let's just say the results of the test were revealing. Uh, because this assessment is normally done on newlyweds or, or, or about to get married, they're still in the honeymoon stage, right? After 10 years, there's a little bit of stuff that you got to work through. But because it, we, this test is normally done with newlyweds, um, there are special questions hidden in the questionnaire to assess how idealistically they view their, real, their relationship. It's to assess, you know, you may feel that way now, but in 10 years, you're not going to feel that way, right? It's going to be a little bit different. We're going to have to work through that. And so these questions, or seven of them hidden in the test, are designed to catch them being too idealistic. And then we call it the idealistic distortion score. The more ideally you look at your relationship, uh, it will lower the rest of your answers to accommodate for it. Uh, it, just, it just helps, it, it's an honesty adjustment. So there's a, I'm gonna give you a couple of these questions and just so you can see how ridiculous they are. Uh, there's, there's seven of them and you can answer either strongly agree or strongly disagree and everything in between. Right there they are. So because I was the tester, I got to see Adrian's answers to these questions. Uh, every new thing I have learned about my partner has pleased me. You know what I answered? Strongly agree. You know what Adrian answered? Disagree. That second one, my partner and I understand each other completely. I strongly agreed with that. After 10 years, I know everything there is to know about Adrian. You know what she put? Disagree. <laughs> and then that last one, my partner completely understands and sympathizes with my every mood. I put strongly agree. Adrian put strongly disagree. <laughs> so I scored an unreasonable 100% on the idealistic distortion score, and my wife scored the much healthier, more appropriate 50% that you're aiming for. And my friends and Chris and Kaylee, you may know Chris and Kaylee. Uh, Chris is a, leads worship here, and Kaylee serves upstairs. They've been around quite a while. They took this test in 2007 with my good friend, Pastor Mike Soski. And we love to laugh about it now because in 2007 when they took the test, Mike had done a few of these exams, and he's like, I have never seen someone fail this test so badly as Chris and Kaylee. The, result, the algorithm almost caught on fire trying to find a way to make them look compatible. 
basically the algorithm said, maybe you guys should seriously consider not getting married, right? That's like how bad the results were. And yet, next month, Chris and Kaylee are celebrating 16 years of marriage. They showed that test who's bossed in there, right? Chris and Kaylee, they run a successful business together. They have two amazing kids. They've got this wonderful marriage and a whole bunch of chickens in their backyard that they're raising. They've carved out this beautiful life for them in spite of what the silly test said about their relationship. Some people defy the odds. And the church is like this. Now, not just Fort City, the church at large, the global church, you know, the story of Jesus should have never made it out of ancient Israel, let alone become what it has today. The odds were completely stacked against it. And yet here we are, an ocean away from the origin of our faith, talking about Jesus. The church should not exist, but here we are. And there are two main Christian teachings that I think helped propel the church out of the first century and into what it is today. The first is the ancient Hebrew teaching called Imago Dei. This was the deep-rooted belief that all humanity was made in the image of God, that all people in creation had the fingerprints of their creator on them, that all people in all time and all history had inherent intrinsic value because God made them. It's put in black and white right at the beginning of your Bible in Genesis 1.27. So God created human beings in their own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. And, and when this teaching first began, right, when Moses first wrote these words, heard from God and wrote these words down, this was not the way the world functioned. The world did not believe that each individual person deserved integrity and autonomy. These ideas that people were valuable just because they were people was a new idea, a novel idea. The, the ancient world didn't believe people were made in the image of God. Only the wealthy and powerful were considered made in the image of God. If someone made you mad, people were not respected. If someone made you mad, you, if you had power and privilege, you could kill them. If you saw someone you liked, that you wanted for yourself, you could just take them. Power and privilege in the ancient world made you like God, not just being born. And thousands of years would pass, and this teaching that God gave Moses was not catching on. Even during the life of Jesus, it was still common for Romans, the, the, the most powerful nation in the world, to, to do this thing called um, uh, exposure or infanticide. It, it was where when, if you had a child, baby, that was born of the wrong sex or, wrong sex, or something, uh, some perceived defect, it was okay, commonly accepted practice, for you to take that child out into the wilderness and leave them exposed to the elements and wash your hands of them and let them die. This was okay. Nobody thought this was wrong. 
in John uh, Dixon's book, uh, Sinners and Saints, a really great book if you're looking for an interesting read, he quotes this ancient archaeological letter that was found from a soldier named Hilarion to his sister, Alice. And the letter is dated June 17th, 1 BC. That's like the first year of the millennia. And this is what he wrote to his sister in an excerpt. I'm staying in Alexandria. I ask you and entreat you, take care of the child, and if I receive my pay soon, I will send it up to you. Above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If it is female, cast it out. You have told Aphrodisius, do not forget me, but how can I forget you? Thus I am asking you not to worry. In this letter to his sister, Hilarion casually instructs her to kill the newborn child if it's a girl. Now, today this is unacceptable, and Hilarion might even go to jail just for suggesting this, but in this ancient context, he is not a moral monster. He was just someone who held the widespread rational view that a child's value depended not on some intrinsic, ineffable worth, but only on what they could contribute to the family. Well, first century Christians who lived at the same time as Hilarion believed differently. Their scriptures taught them that all people are made in the image of God. All people are valuable. And so history records the first century Christians, the first generation Christians after the death and resurrection of Jesus as going out beyond the city walls and to places where children were often left behind by their parents, finding them, rescuing them, and adopting them in to their own families. This belief that we're, we're all made in the image of God changed the world forever. And it's a good question for us to ask. Is there a time or a place where you have failed to see somebody in your life or somebody as a child made in the image of God. Someone who's hard to deal with. Someone that frustrates you. Maybe someone who's done something bad to you. Something, somebody who annoys you. Have you failed to see a person as made in the image of God? We have. We have, haven't we? And you know what? I just want to take a second here before moving on to pray about that. So why don't you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you love us, that your word tells us that you created us with intrinsic value, that we are, we are valuable in your sight. And I pray for those places and times where we have failed to see the people in our lives this way. We have failed to see the fingerprints of our creator on them. And Jesus, we repent of that. And we ask you to give us strength to see people the way you see them. And Jesus, on the other side of that equation, for the people in this room right now who have been on the opposite side, where they have been treated with indignity and unkindness, and as if they didn't value or matter, Jesus, begin to heal those wounds. Any seed of bitterness, would you just wash it away? Help restore their identity as someone made in the image of their creator, of somebody who is of worth and value. I pray this in your name. Amen. The second Christian teaching that I think helped propel the 
first century church out of the first century, uh, comes from Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Someone asked Jesus uh, what the most important commandment was, and Jesus replied, you must love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. It seems to me that in these statements, Jesus is saying that he considers loving God and loving your neighbor on equal ground. Or to put another way, or to rephrase it, it seems like Jesus is saying, by loving your neighbor, you're actually loving Jesus. And so, love your neighbor became a core part, a core value of the first century Jesus followers, and a value that would come to define Christianity to this day. Now, while the early church had this core value of love your neighbor, uh, it was not so equally respected by the best known moral pagan codes of the world powers, including Babylon, Egypt, Greece, and Rome. In fact, in Rome, uh, humility, which is maybe a practical expression of love, was considered a great weakness and very unbecoming. If you were humble, you were weak. And so when it came to love, the early church was again practicing a novel, progressive idea. And I want to look at a couple of examples of how first and second century Christians lived out this love ethic of Jesus. Now, the first couple of centuries of the church are marked by like unexplainable growth uh, amidst seasons of intense persecution. In the church's infancy, it found itself in the crosshairs of powerful institutions that did not want it to succeed. They felt threatened by the Jesus movement. And one of the first documented cases of Christian persecution was of a man named Stephen. Now Luke, uh, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, in, in your Gospels, he wrote the book of Acts. And, and Luke tells us that Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. And one day he preached the good news of Jesus to a group of people, a group of very influential Jews. And they were deeply offended by the things Stephen said to them. And so they dragged him outside the city walls and they began to stone him. He had uh, offended them so deeply that they responded to kill him. And in Acts 7, Luke records as Stephen is beaten to death. By these stones, he prayed for those killing him. Stephen looked up to heaven and he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them as he breathed his last breath. As he died, Stephen blessed those who cursed him. Stephen's example of love and honor in the face of suffering and persecution would become a hallmark of the early church. Without power or privilege, they honored and loved those who hated them. Now things, after Stephen, things got way worse for the first century church. Uh, only 30 years after the public execution of Jesus in 64 AD, Emperor Nero began state-sponsored, statewide, violent persecution of Christians. Uh, the details of this persecution is captured in Roman records. And so the Roman statesman Cornelius Tacitus wrote in his records that Christians were covered in animal skins 
and fed to wild dogs. They were crucified regularly, and at night when they had finally died, they would cover them with oil and set them on fire to light the streets of Rome. And here's something I find interesting. In this period of persecution where all this is happening, a horrible time to be a Christian, Peter writes these words to the church. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't be worry or be afraid of their threats. Or only a few years before Nero's persecution started in Rome, Paul wrote this to the church in Rome, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. These teachings of Peter and Paul in the middle of persecution, it's not miles away, it's not an ocean away, they're living it, they're, they're scared for their lives. These are the words they penned to the church, never repay back evil for evil. I want to give one more example from uh, the, the early church of a way that the early church embraced the love ethic of Jesus. Uh, this one comes from the second century. We're under the provincial governor, Pliny the Younger. We've got weird names today, you guys. Tacitus, Pliny, Odysseus. I don't know. They're all kind of weird names back then. But Pliny the Younger, uh, it had become new, normal under his rule for Christians just to be executed for being Christians. And in a letter to the emperor, uh, Pliny explained his process with Christians. He said, uh, I will ask them if they are Christians. And if they say yes, I'll give them two more times to answer the question and warn them that if they say yes, I will kill them. And this is, this is what he wrote to the emperor uh, after he said, uh, in his own words, he said, their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. Now, in this same year where Pliny Younger is just executing Christians all over the place, uh, a Christian bishop named Ignatius so there's a lot of history this morning. I hope you're staying awake in this. Was arrested and charged with being a Christian. And he was sent on a several month long journey from where he was in Antioch to another city. It was going to take a long time where he was surely going to be put to death. Ignatius wrote a letter while he was in captivity, while he was chained and on his way to his death. And it survived antiquity. I'm going to read you an excerpt from that letter. Pray continually for the rest of humankind as well, that they may find God, for there is in them hope of repentance. Therefore, allow them to be instructed by you, at least by your deeds. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boasts, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in faith. In response to their cruelty, be civilized. Do not be eager to imitate them. Let us show by our forbearance that we are brothers and sisters and let us, to be, let us be eager to be imitators of the Lord. In custody, on his way to his death, Ignatius, the Christ follower, continued to advocate for love and humility in the face of hate and persecution. Have there been times where you've struggled to love your neighbor like this. Not repay evil for evil. To be humble, even when you're right and they're wrong. Oh, that's my hard one. When I'm right and you're wrong, I want you to know you're wrong and I'm right. 
Is it been a struggle? Have you, can you point to times, people even now, to maybe even let the Holy Spirit kind of shine a light on your heart? Is there a person, is there a group of people where you've struggled to love your neighbor? If there is, I want to pray for you. Let's just take a second to pray. Jesus, you gave us this great command to love your neighbor. And you said it was equal to the command to love your God. And so Jesus, where we have fallen short in this regard, we ask your forgiveness. And we ask you to give us your supernatural love. Where we fail, Jesus, hold us up. Help us to see people the way you created them and help us to love them the way that you love them. And Jesus, for those of us who have been on the opposite side of that, where we have been mistreated and hurt, where people have hurled insults towards us, made us feel bad, Jesus, help us to forgive them. Help us to not carry around bitterness. Help us not to return evil with evil. We pray this in your name. Amen. You guys, the teachings of Jesus and the story of Jesus should have never made it out of the first century. I mean, the story begins with our leader being murdered on a cross. The original 12 disciples, all of them gave their lives in, because they were Christians, except for John. I think he died of old age. There is no doubt that the persecution and suffering suffered by the first century church should have extinguished its flame. The church should not exist. We should not exist. But the groundbreaking truth that all people were made in the image of God changed the world forever. And this idea, this command to love one another became the unshakable foundation of the church and the Holy Spirit lit a flame that sent Christianity all across the world. The church should not exist, but here we are. You and me in northern Alberta, almost into the Arctic, an ocean away from the origin story with a sign on the front of the building that says Fort City Church, and here we are worshiping Jesus and teaching his teachings. We are part of something important here at Fort City. We are part of something that stretches back through time and places and culture. And the church is the supernatural presence of Jesus in a world that needs to hear his message of hope. And the church is the primary way. You and I are the primary way Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to the world. We are his hands and we are his feet. And the church is not just a place you go on Sunday mornings, right? You do go to church, the church building, on Sunday mornings, and it's, and it's not just a place to get your emotional or spiritual needs met. That happens. It's not an institution designed to make you safe and feel comfortable. It's actually supposed to make you a little uncomfortable. And the church is not a country club or just a place to be entertained, although we do have some talented worship leaders who make it easy to worship God. The church is the power and the presence of Jesus to a world who desperately needs him. Doug was 100% right last week when he said the church exists primarily for the benefit of people who are not yet part of it. We do what we hear now do, do today. We, we show up, we serve, we give, we pray, we host a car show, we host a Christmas lights bus tour because Jesus has told us the people in our city are valuable to him and he has told us that it is our job to love them. 
a few days ago on socials, uh, I asked a question. I asked people to be brave and share a story of a meaningful relationship that they've had in their life. And maybe even be brave enough to tag that person. And you guys, you did not disappoint. People tag friends and mentors and, and shared stories where people have made a difference in their lives. I liked Kayla Aikens. She tagged Matt and Steph and Dulcie, our YWAM friends. And she said they've helped her grow so much as a Christian, as a woman, as an indigenous person. That, that relationship has blessed her significantly. And then Sherry Atchison shared about how when she was a, a student that the older people, the mentors in her church and in her youth group played an important role in helping her to feel valued and discover her identity. And Richard, he just straight up tagged our men's group, right? Richard has been open about his journey with sobriety, and he had tagged the group saying, this is a place where I'm held accountable, and they put me towards Jesus. That group is important to him. And then John, John, you're over here, Rodriguez, I saw you earlier. John just tagged the church. He just tagged Fort City and talked about how the church is, uh, the Fort City is a place where the infectious love has changed him and his family. And then Stephen and Tash both shared about how serving here at the church and getting involved volunteering changed their lives forever. You guys, what, what we do here, what the church does is important. The church of Christ is alive and well, even though it should have never made it out of the first century. The church is still giving hope to the hopeless and wholeness to the broken and love to those who feel unlovable. And you are part of that story. You are the church wherever you go. You carry Jesus with you. And even though the church is far from perfect, we're far from perfect. Think of how much better it would be if you gave your life to it. God is not calling us to go to church. He's calling us to be the church. So my question this morning is just simple. Are you in? Who wants to help the church to continue to defy the odds? Now, I'm not going to compare our season as a church to the persecution suffered in the first three centuries by the church. But if there is a time for us to stand up and be counted as Christians, if there is a time for us to defy the odds, it is now. We can do it. And we can do it together. If that's you, if, if, if that's you, you're ready to step up and, and, and stand up and be counted. It's time for you to stop being anonymous. It's time to get involved. It's time to join a group. It's trying to, time to serve on a team. It's time to support the mission with your finances, to give your time and your attention and your heart to Jesus and his church and help carry the good news to those who need it. Let me close by praying with you. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you have invited us into this relationship with you. A relationship where we are transformed from just being ourselves, our own individual anonymous selves, into being part of something bigger than ourselves. Being part of your church. Being part of your mission to love the world. Being part of your miss, mission to find those that are lost, to heal those that are broken, to give hope to those who are hopeless. Jesus, you have not just invited us into sitting here week after week on Sundays and join the worship and the message. You have called us to be the church, to carry your good news wherever we go. 
And so Jesus, give us that courage. Give us that call. Help us to be the ones who carry light into the dark places. Help us be the ones who carry hope into hopeless places. As we enter this ministry year as a church, as we got so much coming up on our calendar, so much to do, Jesus, without you, nothing will be successful. And so, Jesus, we just ask you to do what you can, only you can do. Lead us, guide us, empower us. Help us to be the church in Fort Murray that you need us to be. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.